there are about 14 official languages in India and hundreds of tribal languages. So the, the, the Indian missionaries who work in India, may, most of them make a much more costly and demanding cultural change than I did, my wife and I did, when we moved from Britain to the city of Pune to live and work in a seminary there. Welcome to the Keswick Convention podcast. I'm your host, James Carey, and my guest this time is an ordained pastor, scholar, former Christian college principal, and now international ministries director for the Langham Partnership. Chris Wright, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, James. Uh, good to be with you today. And I got your job title right, International Ministries Director, is that right? That is correct, yes. It's a bit of a mouthful, but that's what I am, yep. Well, what does that, could you just give us a uh, sense of what that looks like? Well, the Langham Partnership was uh, founded by John Stott many years ago. It's, it's a ministry that seeks to serve churches in the majority world. That's Africa, Asia, Latin America, uh, with uh, three, three different programs. We try to fund scholars to, to, who will teach in seminaries uh, mm. to get their PhDs. We try to provide literature and uh, encourage writers and publishers out in the majority world. And we also do training for biblical preaching. Uh, in about 90 different countries. So each of those programs, of course, have a staff and a director and a team. My role is very much a kind of coordinating leadership role, which I took on at John Stott's invitation way back in 2001. So uh, it's a ministry that I've been involved with now for nearly 20 years. Goodness me. And if that man asks you to do something, you're going to need quite a good reason not to do it, I would I would imagine. I, I did once say no to John Stott, but that was a, a, a lifetime ago. <laughs> Okay. And uh, he, he forgave you. Oh, he, he obviously did. Listeners may be interested to know if you would like to hear some of the fruit of um, the Langham Partnership, then our interview with Rico Villanueva uh, out there in Manila uh, would, uh, would, would go a bit of a way to fleshing out what that ministry looks like. Very much. Uh, Rico is one of our uh, you know, favourite people. He's, he is a Langham scholar. He did his PhD in, in this country, in the UK, uh, in the Old Testament, as it were, as it was in the Psalms of Lament. Uh, and he's now a, a, a teacher and a leader and an editor and a very significant person there in the Philippines and for Langham Partnership actually in, in Asia as a whole. Great. Well, go and, go and have a listen to that episode. So let's go right back to the beginning. And there was a point at which you heard God's word for the first time. Why don't you uh, tell us a bit about how you came to the faith? Well, as people can probably tell from my accent, at least a little bit that is left, I, I, I was born in Northern Ireland, uh, that's where I grew up, um, and I had godly parents, I'm very privileged in that respect. Uh, my parents had been missionaries in Brazil before I was born, uh, and so I grew up in a home that was both uh, Christian and very much oriented towards uh, Christian mission which we'll probably come to in a minute as well. Uh, and so the, the reading of the Bible and the teaching of the Bible was very much part of our family life. And I also had the great uh, blessing and privilege of going to a church, uh, Berry Street Presbyterian Church in Belfast, where a succession of Welsh ministers uh, taught us the Bible regularly, week by week, systematically expounding Old and New Testament texts. Uh, and so I grew up under that kind of ministry. The, the one that I most remember was Glyn Owen, uh, who would regularly preach and teach the Bible. So in many ways, the Bible was sort of dripped into my life from a very early age, and I'm very grateful for that. So you, you already had an international focus in your upbringing, an international Christian focus from the very beginning. Do you think that was always in your mind the plan that you yourself would be 
uh, an international uh, mission uh, missionary of some kind. Speaking to Jeremy McCoy on a previous podcast, he was saying that that had always been plan A and it was only very late that he suddenly realised, actually whilst training for mission, that that was not his specific calling at that particular time. How did that look for you? Yeah, I don't think it was ever kind of a plan A or a plan B for me. It was always something in the back of our mind. And it really, I grew up not only through my parents' influence, but even the church I belonged to, with the basic understanding that uh, mission wasn't just for missionaries and uh, God could call anyone to anything. And even before my wife and I got married, we sort of started out being boyfriend and girlfriend. Um, we were both Christian believers. And I remember a conversation where I said, look, we, we need, before we get any further, to, to understand that uh, we need to be willing to go wherever God wants us to go and do whatever God wants us to do. And that was a kind of an assumption. So it wasn't that I felt called, quote, to be a missionary from a very early age. It was simply that I was open to that as a, as a possible way in which God might uh, move our life. But I had no, no idea at that time that I would end up in a kind of international role of one sort or another, or indeed travel internationally as much as I've done. So the CV that I have for you is that you you went into ordained ministry. Uh, was was that something you went into early on, or is there is there a non ministry uh, Chris Wright in a parallel universe uh, who is a a solicitor or an international jewel thief? <laughs> there, 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 there was a, a, a wannabe Chris Wright that would have been an international rugby player, but uh, for Ireland, ah. uh, when uh, Willie John McBride, who has only just recently died, was uh, my great hero back then in the 60s and 70s. Um, no, I think the only other alternative career that I might have had was uh, in, um, in theological scholarship in the university context. It was interesting that after I'd finished my undergraduate degree in Cambridge, which I did first of all in classics and then moved to theology, that uh, people like John Stott uh, and Michael Green and um, J.I. Packer and others were saying back then in, 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 the, in the 1960s that God needed um, men and women who are committed evangelically to an evangelical understanding of scripture and the authority of scripture to get into the theological academy and to be teaching. Uh, and when I ended up with a fairly decent degree in theology from Cambridge, I thought, well, maybe that's what God's calling me to. So I went back to Cambridge after a few years of school teaching. Uh, I was a school teacher in Grosvenor High School in Belfast for a few years went back to Cambridge to do a PhD in the Old Testament with that intention. I thought, I'll, I'll do my doctorate and then probably end up as a university lecturer. But it was while doing that PhD that I felt, yes, I, I do want to be, in that sense, a Bible scholar, but not probably within the, in a sense, the secular academy. Um, I was, at that time, Liz and I, with our young growing family, our children were being born at that time, we belonged to a church in Cambridge, St. Philip's Church, Cambridge, which was a lovely, ordinary, basic parish church, very uh, loving, very committed. Um, and we were ministering there and I was involved in some preaching and leading of Bible study groups and so on. And I increasingly felt this is where I want to put my scholarship, if that's what it's going to be. That is at the disposal of the church. And so I then began to feel that my future would probably be in, yes, in Bible teaching, but within more like either a theological college or a seminary where people would actually want to learn the Bible and where it would be more than just a kind of, in some respects, to be honest, a, an academic game, you know, where it was just a matter of coming up with the latest theory or developing a new one. And some of that 
more academic level of theology basically left me rather cold and, and unimpressed. And I felt, no, I, I want to do this. I want to, I want to be serious and credible in terms of the theology one does, but to put it at the disposal of the church, not just into the academy. So that's, that was the shift, really, that happened while I was doing the PhD. And did that therefore lead quite swiftly into ordination and... Uh, and ministry. Yes, it did. Uh, into uh, I, I went to we went to Ridley College, Cambridge. I, I completed my my PhD at Ridley, and then did the ordination training, and then ended up as a, as a curate in Tunbridge Parish Church. And the only small correction I'd make to your question is that that's not when I started the ministry. <laughs> sure. Uh, as John Stott would always say, uh, we we shouldn't talk about the pastoral ministry as the ministry as if it was the only one, because there are hundreds of ways of serving God in ministry, and all Christian disciples are called to ministry. But in terms of my ordained pastoral ministry, yes, that followed uh, directly on getting the PhD. So in, it was in 1977 that I got reverended and doctored uh, in the same year and uh wow. yeah <laughs> suddenly your envelopes became slightly longer to write uh, when people were writing to you the actual period of ordained ministry is something that you then obviously moved away from to be um a bible scholar and to all nations christian college as well but what do you what do you take away from that period of ministry uh in that ordained and paid context what did you what do you cherish about that time what did you learn maybe about yourself mm. Uh, as well as about what ministry, fruitful ministry, can look like? Well, quite a number of things. Those those years in Tunbridge Parish Church were very precious years, and in fact, we, we still have many good friends down there who uh, not only love us and support us, but support Langham because, and continue to support us when we went to India for a number of years as well. So they're very precious years. I think I learned uh, the importance of pastoral ministry, um, that it wasn't all just about um, scholarship and academics. It was to do with helping ordinary people, if there are such things, to understand the Bible better and to live it better. Uh, and so the, 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 you know, the hurly-burly and the regular routine and pressures of parish life and ministry were very good in, in those years when we were in our you know, early 30s. Um, I think one of the things also I took away was the ability to see that even if you struggled under some of the structures of the church, some of the ways in which you were compelled to live and work by, um, by your vicar and so on, that you might struggle with some of those, but you could live with that provided you would get on with the job of actually caring for people and preparing and preaching God's word, that it was people who mattered and the job that mattered rather than fighting over the structures, uh, even if you struggled with them. And I learned that as a lesson and carried that into uh, the kind of work I then had to do. I did a seminary in India and back at All Nations Christian College. I think one other thing I learned while I was in the ordained ministry as a curate in Tunbridge was that I um, saw in myself a tendency to workaholism. Um, it was actually, you know, because work was very hard. You know, you could you could do that sort of work as a curate twenty four seven. You know, it was day and night, and you know, it was it was relentless those pressures. And because you have this feeling, oh, this is God's work. You know, everything else must come second to this, which of course is a, is a mistaken way of looking at it. Um, I did end up getting under a lot of stress and pressure, and my wife and. One of my colleagues took me aside one day and said, Chris, you are becoming a workaholic. This has got to stop. Uh, and I was able, with their help, to repent of that, to realize that it was not only damaging me, but was actually not a way to honor God. And so that, that was a lesson I learned then. I still have that tendency. It's very easy if you're driven by 
you know, getting things done and wanted to move forward and get something achieved and tick things off on the list, you know, all those tendencies mm -hmm. that you can easily then fall into valuing yourself because of your accomplishments and your work. And, uh, it is a danger that any Christian could face, and I did. So I was grateful for learning that lesson early on. We're recording this in lockdown, where I'd imagine quite a lot of people are uh, feeling isolated and also trying to do a job from home, which could be even more all-consuming, actually. Rather than it being less work, it becomes even more so. Uh, sort of biblically, how did you get yourself out of that situation? I mean, the courage of one or two just to say, look, this is not, this is not healthy, which I think is, is one lesson that we can learn from that. But, but what passages were you, were you using to, to, to pull you out of that tailspin? Yeah, I think um, a number of things. One is realizing that while the Bible has a very strong theology of work, which I believe in, and I think evangelicals need to take more seriously, and I don't just mean Christian work, I mean all work matters to God. Mm. We, we are created to be workers. That the Bible has an equally important theology of rest, uh, and that's why Sabbath comes very early in the Bible story and why God commanded the Israelites to take rest. Um, and why I think uh, it was very important in our in the parish, and I am grateful for this, that the, the vicar, uh, Charles Searle Barnes, the late Charles Searle Barnes, the very first item on our weekly staff meeting for him and, our, and the three curates was days off in the week to come. And we, we all had a day off. Um, and if we didn't use it, it was our own fault. You know, it, it was an important biblical principle that we needed to rest. Um, and so I, I had to take that more seriously and to rec realize that I shouldn't use that day off to be thinking about what the next day would bring and to sort of have in the back of my mind. I needed to give that day to my wife, to, to the family, if it could be possible, to going out, to doing stuff that wasn't, you know, it was a genuine rest. Um, and I think I've tried to, to uphold that through life. I mean, it's always possible. And, you know, people in, quote, Christian work uh, often struggle with that, that Sunday isn't a day of rest and so on. Um, but I, I think that that was an important scriptural principle. I th think the other thing, perhaps a little bit later, was that John Stott himself had to learn to take this seriously. He tells us in, in, you know, in his sort of few autobiographical pieces that he's written that in his early days at All Souls, he fell into the same deep stress as a young um, rector that he was, only in his 30s. Uh, and that the best advice he was ever given was when someone told him to take uh, quiet days, his QDs, um, not just a, a day off a week, but that he would then take a regular day off, um, if possible, a month when he would go away and get right out of the parish, go somewhere secret and spend the day just, you know, thinking, reflecting, resting. Um, so I, I think this is important. Uh, it is there in the Ten Commandments, isn't it? Um, if, you know, I, I know there's all sorts of theological ways in which we interpret those commandments in relation to the New Testament. But I sometimes used to say to students my, in, in India when I was teaching future pastors there, and I would talk about the importance of having a day off uh, as a pastor, and they would laugh and say, oh, I, I, you know, my church will never allow me to have a day off. Uh, you know, the pastor don't, doesn't have days off. And I said, so why don't you tell them, well, do you expect me then to, you know, to make love to um, the, the choir master's wife? Um, and so, no, 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 no. And I said, well, if, if you don't expect them, if they don't expect you to break the seventh commandment, why are they insisting that you break the fourth? <laughs> you know, yeah. um, we've got to be yeah. consistent in the way we seek to apply God's law, his laws of love, even within mm. a Christian context. So that was something that you learned um in in that ministry period which you were not necessarily expecting uh you then moved into more back into biblical scholarship and, and teaching uh, what was the difference as it were between being a bible scholar and then 
teach, teaching were you mostly teaching people for ministry um at all nations yes in some ways you, you bring one experience into the other i mean um i spend an awful lot of time both in a pulpit and in a classroom um and there's a part of me which kind of is the same in both places hmm. that's the same when i'm preaching the bible there's often a, a fairly strong teaching component because you want to explain the text and tell people what it means and use whatever means are possible to help people to understand and enjoy discovering what's in the Bible. And so the, the teacher in me doesn't get lost in the pulpit, but equally the preacher in me doesn't get lost in the classroom because when I'm you know, doing exegesis of a text from Isaiah or the Psalms or whatever it might be, and I've been all over the, the Bible in Bible colleges, um, Yes, you, you, it's, it's a lecture, and so it's a different format from uh, a sermon, and it's probably longer, and you take questions and answer and all that kind of thing, so you're in a teaching mode. But my desire always is that the, the students will get excited, that they, that they will feel, gosh, here's somebody who loves this scripture, and gosh, I had never noticed that before, this is wonderful, so that they are being spiritually refreshed or challenged mm. or rebuked or encouraged, whatever it might be, yeah. from the word. And so there's a... I've never felt that this was a huge dichotomy between the academic and the pastoral. They really ought to be informing each other uh, and feeding into each other in the course of, of a Bible teacher's life. Hello, Kate here from Keswick Ministries. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not check out Keswick's other podcast, Kes Talks. They're a selection of talks from God's Word given at the Keswick Convention that we hope and pray will be particularly helpful to people in the times we face now. Kez Talks, available on iTunes, Spotify and your podcasting apps. Presumably you were seeing numerous students pass through that college uh, in your in your time there and in, in other times that you've been teaching in that context. The theme for Keswick, uh, the, the virtually Keswick convention this year is hope. Uh, what are the signs of hope from, from those candidates and for those people that you were seeing um, and maybe what, what were some of their potentially false expectations of what their ministry might look like? Thank you. Well, there are two, two contexts, of course. The primary one, well, the, the, the first one was in India, uh, teaching in the Union Biblical Seminary in India, where the majority of the students there were indeed going into pastoral ordained ministry, although some were going into becoming missionaries and serving in other Christian, forms, uh, Christian agencies. Um, and the great joy is that um, there are a good number of them. I mean, I suppose, I don't know how many hundreds would have passed through the classrooms in the five years I was teaching there, but we are still in contact with many of them. Uh, and there are some of them who we knew better, who were the more fluent in English and uh, went into more sort of larger ministries and we kept in touch with them and we are overjoyed when they continued in ministry but every now and again we get an email or a contact from one of the students that we didn't know so well and they just said you know dr wright we want to tell you that we're doing this or that and think well god has continued to be active in their lives over these last 30 years mm -hmm. while they've been faithfully serving him probably in some more obscure place uh, in india and yet being faithful and that's always a great encouragement to know that that's yeah. happened in the other context which was all nations christian college the majority of the students there were not going into ordained pastoral ministry. They were going into all forms of cross-cultural mission uh, right. around the world. And so some of these students from all nations will get in touch and, uh, and refer to things that they were taught or that we learned and struggled through together at college way, way back. And that's so encouraging. So it does fill you with a sense of 
um, hope and also gratitude that you say, well, you know, in some little ways, God used whatever gifts he gave to me to invest that for his glory into the lives of others, which was not by any means trying to replicate myself in other people. That, that's foolish. But rather to plant the seeds of God's word in other people's lives in a way that the Holy Spirit can then water and make bear fruit. From your experience then of, of, of all of this uh, that you have across these various ministries and roles that you've had, what about those who are listening to this podcast who are thinking that maybe international ministry uh, or missionary work is for them? What, 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 what do you say to people who are, who are exploring this? Well, I would say um, I trust that we no longer have any kind of romantic ideas of what missionary life and work is all about um, or any very old-fashioned ideas that somehow we go out to the rest of the world and teach them how to be Christians and all of that. Um, one of the things that uh, I think this lockdown is teaching us is that there are other parts of the world that are doing an awful lot better than us in the West. We need a, we need a big dose of humility, uh, and that applies internationally, but also especially in the Christian church. Um, we now in the West, if that's where people are listening, we are the minority church. We now constitute only about 25% of global Christians. So we need to realize that, you know, God is powerfully at work out there in other parts of the world. And so if, yes, God calls us into some kind of cross-cultural international ministry, we do it with a, a great deal of humility. We go to serve, to work alongside, to offer whatever we can to be under the authority of um, national leaders and organizations and structures. So that's the first thing, get informed about the realities of the world church. And then I would also say, if someone is thinking of, of some kind of cross-cultural mission in that sense, do invest some time and money in getting trained, in getting some level of equipping uh, to understand what cultures are and what cultural differences are and how the word of God needs you know, to be in different contexts. Uh, and that's where a place like All Nations Christian College comes in, because for, you know, for decades they have been doing that. Um, they've been training and encouraging and equipping people for cross-cultural sensitivity and understanding and how to relate the gospel to the different cultures of the world. So uh, be humble and get trained and then be willing to be courageous and if necessary to suffer because the world is a tough place. It's just very encouraging as you were talking about India and your work there and the hundreds of people that have gone through and just thinking it's a country of, of a billion people. And the mission field is huge, but actually that is a lot of people going out into that mission field, isn't there? Well, it is. Um, but uh, yeah, but for in a sense, for every one British person that I can think of who's gone and uh, been a mission partner in India, there are hundreds and hundreds of Indian missionaries. Absolutely. India, I think, is either the first or the second largest missionary sending country in the world now. Um, uh, now, of course, m most or many of those Indian people who are involved in, in mission agencies in India are working within India. And you might say, well, that's cheating. They haven't left their own country. Um, but let me tell you, to, to go from one state in India to another state or to go from urban India to rural India is a massive cross-cultural difference. It's a difference of culture, but also of language. I mean, any of these folk, are, there, are, you know, there are about 14 official languages in India and hundreds of tribal languages. So the... the, the Indian missionaries who work in India, may, most of them make a much more costly uh, 
and demanding cultural change than I did, my wife and I did, when we moved from Britain to the city of Pune to live and work in a seminary there, uh, working as it was in English because it was an English medium college. Yeah, it was five years living in India, but what was demanded of us culturally wasn't as great as for someone, say, going from one of the big cities of India to work in a very rural village in a tribal area. Before we round off thinking about what you'll be looking at at the Virtually Keswick Convention coming up at the end of July. Let's just talk a bit about the Old Testament. That's something that you've taught an awful lot and taught people how to teach. Um, What are the common mistakes that you do find in people teaching the Old Testament? Or are there any kind of headlines that you can give our listeners about how to approach the Old Testament right when to some it feels, many parts of it feel very, very unfamiliar. Mm. Um, Although there are plenty of parts of the New Testament where you read the book of Jude and you think, wow, I have no (laughs) no idea what's going on there. Why doesn't everybody ever preach this? Oh, I I think I know why. Um, But in terms of the Old Testament, can you just maybe give us a sense of of how you teach people to teach it? First of all, to see it as part of the Bible, because it is. Uh, It's the largest part of the Bible, and without it, we really cannot understand Jesus. The, The New Testament, in many ways, is simply the first Old Testament theology. Uh, It was interpreting Jesus in the light of the scriptures. We do need to remember that uh, the problem that we often have is we want to say, how do we cope with the Old Testament? Is the Old Testament Christian? Does it really fit with uh, with the God of Jesus and, and the church? That was not the problem that the earliest Christians had. Their problem was precisely the opposite. It was, who are we and what are we trying to do as the church? Is what we're trying to do compatible with the scriptures, meaning the Old Testament? It was the scriptures which was for them the authority, uh, the guiding. That, that's, that's crucial. So that's the first thing that we need to take seriously, what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture, and he meant the Old Testament, is given by the breath of God, breathed out by God, and is profitable for rebuke and training and righteousness and so on. So we need to take it very seriously. The second thing I say to people is see it as part of the whole story. Treat the Old Testament as the the first section of a narrative of which Jesus is the center and the new creation is the goal. But unless you understand Acts 1, 2, and 3, you know, the, 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 the story of creation, the reality of the fall and God's promises to Abraham and the story of Israel and their failures and so on in the Old Testament, you won't even begin to understand Acts 4, 5, 6, and 7 when you come to the New Testament of the gospel, the mission of the church, the final judgment and the new creation. So one of the best things I think any of us can do in teaching the Old Testament is always to set it within the overarching canonical biblical narrative and to say this is our story we're part of this story these these people are our people this is not something antique and ancient and way out there we need to inhabit this story and realize that it belongs to us as well Um, then i think i would say yes there's there's a kind of way of teaching the old testament which is very convinced that it's all ultimately leading up to christ and that christ is the sort of the center of the bible which then leads some people to say, oh, right, any passage I've got in the Old Testament must be, quote, about Jesus. Uh, and so they want to squeeze Jesus into or out of every Old Testament passage, which I think, again, is, is a false way of handling the text. Uh, we are In the Old Testament, we are on a journey that leads to Christ. It's, it's ultimately the journey that has its destination and its fulfillment in him. But that doesn't mean that every chapter, every psalm, every verse is about Jesus. No, it's about whatever God is wanting to tell us at that time, how he was dealing with his people, 
um, how he was teaching them, rebuking them, challenging them, and so on. So the story needs to be read with its own integrity and for its own sake. And then when we've done that, done all our homework on that text, then to ask the question, now how does this connect with what I know of God's revelation through Christ? And we move there. That's why I've written books like, uh, you know, Knowing Jesus Through the Old Testament, uh, or Sweeter Than Honey, uh, preaching, uh, you know, preaching and teaching the Old Testament for all it's worth. Uh, those are books where I've tried to put some of these principles into action. Excellent. Well, we will put links to those books in the show notes so people can get hold of those. Um, but let's just finish off by thinking about what you'll be sharing with us at the Virtually Keswick Convention at the end of July. What will you be looking at then? The, the, what I'm doing at Virtually Keswick this year is, is doing the sermon in the BBC Radio 4 Sunday service on the 26th of July, uh, and I will be preaching from Lamentations chapter 3, because the theme of Virtually Keswick, as you've said, is hope, uh, and it's quite remarkable that in the middle of that book, Lamentations, which must be the darkest book in the whole Bible, speaking out of the horror and suffering of the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 BC, we have these amazing words where, for the first time, uh, the, the, the writer says, all I've hoped for is gone. Hope is gone. It's perished. And the very next verse, he says, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. And then what he calls to mind is the words that we have put into a, a favorite Christian hymn, great is thy faithfulness. You know, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Great is thy faithfulness. Uh, and it's, it's that passage that I want to speak on. Uh, but I want to see it in the context of the suffering and the pain that Lamentations is about. Because I think in these days, not just the coronavirus, but also so many other aspects of our world in which we see reasons to lament, reasons to, be, to, to grieve and mourn, to protest, uh, that this book of Lamentations, along with a number of Psalms and the book of Job and so on, are very relevant to today sadly very neglected especially by evangelical churches who sometimes seem to think that the only thing we can ever do is praise god and thank him and be happy and god says well i did give you these books in the bible which actually give you words to use when you need to express pain and suffering and lament uh, and so i want to put the theme of virtually keswick hope into that context and say something briefly about it then well, that's exciting that that will also be uh, for the nation to listen to via the BBC. So we can very much look forward to that. Thank you so much for giving us um, of your time, Chris. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you, James. Good to talk. And we'll speak to you next time. Bye bye.